Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome in. It's the Pop 6. It's a new one to be on the airwaves with this podcast edition of What It Is I Do. My name is Jason Martin. You know me as a host of the Big Six, as well as a host of the Jason Martin Show on Fox Sports Radio and Squared Circle Radio for five and a half years with Brandon Hagney and David Reed, my two, two of my best friends in the world. That show on Sunday mornings as well. But this is my podcast. I've done pop culture podcasts for a while. You might remember Outkick the Culture a couple of years ago. Well, when I came back to do the Big Six, they wanted me to bring my pop culture content as well. So I write reviews at 1045thezone.com slash Big Six blog, where I'm the lead writer and the editor-in-chief. And certainly I do these podcasts. haven't done them as consistently as I probably should, but hopefully that is about to change. And here on July 5th, we're giving you an opportunity to sample some of this content. There's a lot of really exciting stuff at 1045thezone.com. What you want to do is you want to go to the website and look at the drop-down menu under the Connect. There you'll see it at the top. And the very first option says Podcast and On-Demand Audio. And right there you can just get yourself right to the hub where, of course, you can hear all the regular shows, 3HL, Midday 180, Wake Up Zone, Big Six, uh, Doug Matthews stuff. You can see that. You can see the Neutral Zone there as well. And then you can see some of just the podcast exclusive stuff, Speedway Soccer, which covers Nashville, FC, as well as Step One Learn Sports. Brittany and Avery, they were in for me a couple of weeks ago on the Big Six, kind of an amalgam of pop culture and sports for a different audience, maybe one that doesn't understand sports quite as much but can relate to it through a different way. It's a really cool idea, and they're doing a great job with it. Paul Kaharski's Elsewhere podcast where he has longer-form stuff, and he just goes all over the place, and you know PK you know that's worth listening to. And then, of course, if you got time, there is the Pop 6. We've had a lot of fun. Brad Wills, the program director here at The Zone, joined me for a month of episodes on Friends. We went through it season by season and finished off with a talent draft. I think it was a 15-round, may have actually been a 20-round draft, the two of us drafting our, quote, teams, unquote, of Friends characters. And David Reed and Rhett Bryan joined me for The Office. And we still have an episode we need to do, including a draft there. We did a couple of weeks with the Marvel Cinematic Universe after Avengers Endgame came out, did a draft there. That's going to be kind of the hallmark is we're going to end with a draft. But today, a special edition, and it couldn't be more timely because just yesterday, on July 4th, Stranger Things Season 3 hit Netflix. And you heard the theme, Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein. That soundtrack, ladies and gentlemen, is about as good as it gets. Uh, You just don't get that kind of nostalgia. And that's really where I want to go here. Because to talk about Stranger Things, you have to talk about larger themes across pop culture. And so we've seen sequels. We've seen a ton of sequels just this year. Far From Home came out this week. Sequel to Homecoming. Continuing the Spider-Man story for Marvel. We've, of course, seen the X-Men Dark Phoenix. Well, hopefully you didn't see it. But that's kind of what Hollywood does now, remakes and sequels. 
and nostalgia. And there are very few new ideas in storytelling anymore. It's always, ooh, could this be the next Game of Thrones? The newest edition is The Witcher, Netflix's original series with Henry Cavill based on the Project Red PS4, PC, Xbox One game that is leading to Cyberpunk that comes out next year. Keanu Reeves is going to be in. Everything is about a new iteration on what has already been created. Generally, it's not something wholly fresh and groundbreaking. So the most successful shows are ones that somehow feel original and unique, even though they're generally still borrowing on a lot of what came before. Just a couple of examples. You've got Justified, Timothy Oliphant, and Walton Goggins, and Joel Carter. Just an awesome show, Natalie Z. But there was a lot of Deadwood in that show. Of course, Oliphant was on Deadwood as well, and the movie for Deadwood just came out a couple of months ago. But Justified still managed to carve out its own niche. Raylan Givens and Boyd Crowder was an iconic rivalry that was kind of more Batman versus Joker than anything else. These two people needed each other. They seemed to thrive on the on-again, off-again wars and battles And there was certainly a chaos to Boyd Crowder in the end. But those two were very flawed characters that were almost mirror images of one another, even though they were coming from completely different start points. Breaking Bad, that was a concept that had been done before in some form, but Vince McGilligan, he took a lot of different things. He took a spaghetti western, he took some black comedy elements, he took high-level anti-hero drama, and he weaved it all together Looking back to some of the things he had done, he did Home Fries with Drew Barrymore. That was one of the first things he ever wrote. And he went on to do one of the most successful and critically acclaimed series in the history of the medium. BoJack Horseman, maybe something you've never tried before, but it was was stellar because it subverted its own visuals. We've seen plenty of animated shows that have gone for an adult audience, but the animation in BoJack Horseman existed basically to make the story palatable because it's about as bleak and dark as anything on TV. Because you can sit there and you can laugh at these sight gags and these animal jokes, the same kind of things that you've seen in so many different animated primetime deals, but it's not built off all the references, even though it borrows from Family Guy and some of that stuff. But this is stories of depression and stories of despair and hopelessness and trying to find meaning in life and things of that nature. Sons of Anarchy was basically a mixture of Hamlet and The Sopranos. It was familiar in so many ways, taking a little bit from this and a little bit from that, that it somehow found a way to feel different. And that's the key to success, appear to be something you're not. It's basically the point of defense in the NFL. It's all about misdirection. You want the offense to think they know what you're doing, but to be wrong, to create a smokescreen, if you will, where you can surprise them once the ball leaves a quarterback's hand, either into the running back's arms or into a receiver's hands down the field. Or at least you want to make him think he's got space to run when he doesn't. So in TV, it's really similar. The best kind of twist is the one where the audience has been predicting one thing. And they think that they're in the writer's room with that crew. And they're inside that writer's room's head. And then a twist still comes but goes in a completely different direction. I would tell you about The Leftovers. I have tried to get people to watch it for such a long time. It may have had as good an ending as we'll ever see in TV, and it's mainly because 
the expectations that Damon Lindelof created from the beginning of that show, which was 10% of the population, give or take, disappearing in a rapture-like event, he said before the show started, do not expect us to explain why this happened. Lost, everyone expected answers that they did not get, and that was Lindelof, and maybe he learned a lesson. Even though I think he gave the perfect answer at the end of Lost, I'm in the extreme minority with that position. But the leftovers didn't explain the rapture event. It was a story of what happened to the people that were left behind. And there were a lot of problems, but it was not Tim LaHaye and Tim Jenkins. It was not that kind of left behind in that way. It wasn't really trying to tell a religious story. But the way the leftovers ended, where you saw someone able to cross over to that side, to the other side. And I'll just tell you at this point, if you haven't seen it, tough. Nora goes across and she comes back and she sits down. And she sits down with Kevin Garvey, and she tells him what she experienced. And it was so brilliantly executed because she sits across from him, and she says, you know, we've been sitting here thinking about, you know, we lost 10% of the population. I lost my kids. You lost this and blah, blah, blah. We never stopped to think that that 10% lost 90% of us. And so the flip is... When she went over there, she realized there would be one person. The entire family would be gone. There'd be nobody else on the street. There were no jobs. There were no places to work because there weren't enough people to staff them. There weren't police. There weren't fire. There weren't rescue. And what I took from that was here you had a show where you were so self-absorbed with the characters on screen that you didn't think about the plight of those who disappeared, that they went to another universe alone and that there were far less of them. And so we're always so concerned about ourselves that we can't stop and think about what might have happened on the other side. And I thought it was brilliantly executed. But Stranger Things, which is the bigger topic here, and we're going to do more on Stranger Things on the Pop 6, so you definitely want to go ahead and subscribe to that if you haven't already. After Season 3, after I've had time to really process it, I'm going to write on these episodes, and you're going to be able to read that at the Big 6 blog. But also, we're going to do more of a podcast to go into detail because we have, you know, 45 minutes here. And a lot of these podcasts, when I do them, are 90 minutes or longer. We just don't have that option here as we're kind of giving you a preview. And, and I'm not somebody that can just sit here and talk about Stranger Things without talking about other things. That's one thing you'll find about me is larger themes matter to me. So what Stranger Things was, was a play on nostalgia from the 1980s, which is when I grew up. And it hits every chord, and it hits it incredibly effectively. And so there was a book released back in 2014, Brett Martin. He worked with GQ and Vanity Fair and New York Times. He's also a vet of NPR and This American Life on WBEZ Chicago. He wrote a book called Difficult Men, Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution, From the Sopranos and the Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And it goes into, a little bit it goes into the anti-heroes created in all these shows, all those shades of gray. But mainly it's about the autocratic nature of the showrunners during that time period that have really led to what we're still seeing now. Guys that were relentless control freaks about these stories, even while they're battling egomania and substance abuse and massive depression in their own lives. There's really not anything new under the sun when it comes to fiction. Ask yourself what the truly original thing that you've seen recently is. What's the last truly unique thing you saw? And when you tell me, I can poke a hole in it. 
because everybody thinks they're a genius, meaning showrunners and people in Hollywood and even critics. They have something no one has ever thought of before. But ladies and gentlemen, that's basically never true. So sometimes nostalgia works even better. And that is where we begin talking about Stranger Things. So when we come back, we're going to jump into Stranger Things and talk about the first season of the show, what it was, why it works, and just continue down this. And this is what we do on the Pop 6. We deep dive into every nook and cranny of these things that soak up a lot of your entertainment time. And I hope you're digging this. And we'll be right back. Hope you're enjoying the holiday weekend as well here on 104.5 The Zone. Special edition here on 104.5 The Zone, The Pop 6, which is where I do my podcast work and talk about pop culture, which I've been writing about for quite some time now. Currently, you can find it at 104.5thezone.com slash big6blog before it outkicked the coverage previously.tv and several other places, cage-side seats among them, SB Nation's pro wrestling site. I'm Jason Martin, by the way, host of The Big Six here on the station and The Jason Martin Show. Hope you're enjoying your holiday. We're giving you an opportunity to sample some of the content that you haven't gotten to hear. Maybe yet, if you haven't checked out the website, you got to do that because PK Elsewhere is over there. Paul Kaharski's new show that, that goes all over the place. He's had Simon on that thing for an extended length of time. That was fascinating. Also, Step One Learn Sports with Avery and Brittany. There's a lot of fun to be had over there, so we certainly hope that you're checking it out. We're talking Stranger Things here for the hour. Season three hit yesterday on Netflix, and Netflix is a phenomenon. I don't know what percentage you can place on any property being watched by a certain number of people, but I think that it would be fair to say Stranger Things is probably a one in five proposition. I'd say 20% of the people that have Netflix have seen or are fans of Stranger Things. It That may be an underestimation, but... I just feel like there's a lot of people with Netflix that are just watching The Office and just watching Friends. And if you know, The Office is about to get wiped off in 2021 and go to NBC's new streaming service. And we're about to see something happen in television. It's going to be fascinating. While everybody's telling you to cut the cord and that cable's ridiculous and you can go get the content that you want and not have to pay nearly as much, stuff like NBC and their own streaming service taking cheers and the office and things like that that people really like off of netflix and making you have to pay an additional fee just to get nbc's content just like cbs all access and of course you've got netflix hulu amazon prime uh hbo go or hbo now all of these various things and you're about to have not just espn plus but disney plus with all of the marvel stuff and all of the pixar stuff when you start to add up all of these subscriptions there is going to be a move at some point where someone is going to write an article saying that you can get all of this stuff in one package, and that package is called cable. But right now, Netflix is still printing its own money. It's surprising to me that they're canceling anything at all, but they are, and it's because of the production costs and just the sheer quantity that they're putting out. I think two or three years ago, the number was 550-plus original shows across television and streaming platforms. I think that was back in 2015. It's even more now. But Stranger Things is undoubtedly a heavyweight. It is the kind of thing that people keep their subscription for, or if they let it lapse, they come back and pick this up, and then maybe after they've watched this, they'll drop back off if they're trying to save money. Same thing with HBO. When The Sopranos was on, you would get your subscription 
you would add that 13 bucks a month or whatever, and then when it came to an end, you would back off. So why has Stranger Things worked the way that it has? Well, it works because even though the cast were largely relative unknowns, now not Winona Ryder, and some people knew who David Harbour was, and then you had like Sean Astin and Paul Reiser and some of the folks that we have seen in a little bit smaller roles but still fairly big roles, you know who they are. But the show's mainly about the kids, and we don't know anything about these kids before we watched them in Stranger Things. or Not many people did, at least. But even though I would say the actors themselves are not household names, with the exception of Millie Bobby Brown, who's a superstar because the Eleven character transcended the show and was the thing that stuck for most people, even though the actors aren't household names, these characters have become household names. When we see them, we know what they bring. We know who they are. We know Dustin didn't have any teeth. He was still getting, you know, his baby teeth kind of knocked out, getting his permanent teeth, and you see him in season two with those new teeth. He's got the new hair. He's got that old 80s hat on. They're all playing video games. You remember this, or at least I do at my age, being 40 right now. I remember growing up in the 80s and what it was. But we cared about those four kids. We cared about Mike, and we cared about Dustin, and we cared about Lucas, and certainly we cared about Will Byers, who was the main crux of the first season of the show. And then there was Millie Bobby Brown, who we didn't know who she was, and now everybody does. Season two, at the end, she was huge, but a lot of season two, she meandered around. And her standalone episode where she went to Chicago was probably the worst episode in the show so far out of both seasons. But the nostalgia of this show, it's not a show about monsters. Monsters are in it. But just as with so many other television shows and so many other movies, the concept or what you can really pull from it is always the same. Like I said, I had friends that played Dungeons and Dragons, even though I really never did. Maybe once or twice or something like that I played. But they play religiously, and that's sort of the backing story underneath Stranger Things is this game that they're playing is almost coming to life, at least in terms of the monsters. Not perfectly, but there's something there. But, I mean, I played plenty of games. I played my share of board games and video games and created games. And the friendships that I had growing up deepened through all of those experiences in, in much the same way as they do for these characters. Now, monsters are in the show, the Demogorgons and the Demodogs and all of that. They are there, but they're the catalyst. They are the thing that makes these people become who they're supposed to be for the Duffer Brothers story of Stranger Things. They're a Trojan horse. And I want you to think about your favorite shows. How many series, and mainly dramas here, comedies you can't really do this with, but how many series turn out just really to be about the people? Virtually all of them. The setting, the theme, the visuals, the soundtracks, all of that stuff is, it's again just kind of a way to put a fresh coat of paint on a story. But it's a story about the personalities, the quirks, and the mindsets of human beings. Zombies make Rick Grimes and all the characters on The Walking Dead react under pressure, becoming who they are, warts and all. And then you do have some shows out there that try to teach lessons or impart social commentary. David Simon's The Wire was definitely about systemic corruption. It was about failures to take care of lower class folks. And it was also kind of about the reality that even if the players changed, in Baltimore, the game still stayed the same. 
But whether or not your show takes place in space, like Battlestar Galactica, in the Wild West, like Deadwood, or a new version of the Wild West in Harlan, Kentucky, with Justified, or in our case, in the 1980s with Stranger Things, it's all ultimately going to boil down to these characters. Mad Men, Matthew Weiner's brilliant show, that advertising stuff was a lot of fun. The Kodak Carousel is still probably my favorite. But that show was about Don Draper, and it was about Peggy Olson and Roger Sterling and Betty Draper and Peter Campbell, and about what this world became around them and how they either changed with the times or turned out to be exactly what we thought they were from day one. So Stranger Things takes these monsters, and it takes the horror elements, and it uses them to allow its people, its characters, to evolve rather than devolve. It makes them rootable figures while still keeping them flawed. Their flaws are still intact. But we have seen growth in some of these characters that I don't know that we necessarily expected to go there when we first watched it. And the biggest example was Steve Harrington, who was Nancy. Well, he wanted Nancy in the first season. And he was just kind of the jock and the jerk. And so you thought that's what he was always going to be. Okay, I can typecast this character. I know exactly who this dude is going to be. And then you find out, no, not at all. In season two, he becomes a hero. He becomes a heroic figure, a babysitter at times to the younger boys, and someone that's willing to put his you know, his skin on the line. Even with Nancy going in the opposite direction and kind of falling for Will's brother, Jonathan Byers. But when we start this show in 1983... Will Byers disappears. He encounters a creature after leaving his friend's house. And so the Demogorgon, we would find out, and the Demogorgon is the name of a monster that you see in Dungeons and Dragons. That's where you start of you sort of see the crossover. And Dungeons and Dragons makes sense the same way that like a Ouija makes sense. Because if you remember the West Memphis three case, that is still one of the more controversial decisions. You remember the offered plea that Damian Eccles took a couple of years ago, Eddie Vedder and Johnny Depp and all these people were saying the West Memphis Three were, were not guilty. I'm actually one of them. I, I don't believe that they did it either. And some of these I have not been able to get there. Adnan Syed, I still don't know who could have done it if not him. I want to believe he didn't do it. Stephen Avery making a murderer. Man, season one seemed like it was real propaganda. I liked his new defense attorney and what she told us in the last couple of episodes of season two, but I still don't know if I can even go there just yet in terms of feeling totally secure. But there's a nostalgia here, and that's the overall point just in that the Ouija, remember it was supposed to be evil, and it was supposed to be a gateway to Satan, and, and all of these things. There was a There was certainly something called a satanic panic in the 80s it was metallica and slayer and all this music was luring these kids to be devil worshipers and all this and a lot of it turned out to be hokey quite frankly and the west memphis three because because they wore black and listened to metallica seemed to be perfect to go after them in west memphis arkansas and frame them for the heinous crimes that they were framed for well stranger things takes its cues not from ouija but from dungeons and dragons which was also kind of painted with that same larger brush and it's kind of a well to borrow uh, to borrow the name of the show, it's a stranger thing. It's a, it's a little bit off the beaten path. It's not sorry or monopoly. There's something else going on here. And so that really formulates the beginnings. And then you actually get deeper on into the story itself. So we got to take another break. Again, we're not going to be able to get into this as deeply as we will 
on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Pop Six Podcast, definitely check it out. Go to your podcast catcher of choice. Subscribe. You get the, all the friend stuff, all the office stuff, the Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff. It's all my musings on pop culture. I bring in special guests. We have an absolute blast, and it's all free for you. You can also go to 1045thezone.com, look for the Connect link, and then see podcast and on-demand audio. We'll be right back talking Stranger Things for the remainder of the hour here on 104.5 The Zone. So we're having some fun here on a Friday doing some podcast things. Not the big six today. You know me. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. I'm also the host of the Pop Six, a pop culture podcast you can find at 1045zone.com. Under the podcast page, you can find the Connect tab, and then the drop-down menu will take you there. Step one, learn sports. Paul Kaharski elsewhere. Speedway soccer. There are so many things to check out there. And I've been doing a pop culture podcast for a long time, and we're just letting you sample some of that content here today as you're enjoying probably a day off from work. And we certainly hope you're digging this. So we've been talking Stranger Things. And the thing about the pop six is usually when I say I'm going to talk about stranger things, I do, but I also end up talking about a lot of stuff outside of that to get to the point. Sometimes I write too much. Sometimes I talk too much. Maybe that's why I ended up with this job. So we haven't talked the nuts or we talked the nuts and bolts. We haven't talked about the story really of stranger things. So season one takes place in 1983. And we talked about how Will Byers disappears right off the start, basically. On his bike, he runs into what we find out later is the Demogorgon, and he vanishes. And that's sort of kind of the jump-off point for Stranger Things. Joyce Byers is his mother, Winona Ryder, and basically she files a missing persons report. Chief Hopper, who's David Harbour's character, he kind of snaps into action very slowly. We wonder what he's going to be. He's kind of a drunk and looks like he's depressed and having issues, but he turns out to be a redemptive figure as well. That's the thing about Stranger Things that I like the most is that there appear to be positive changes for our characters. They're not all becoming jerks. They're not all becoming drug addicts. It's not a negative feeling. While, yes, some of the content of the show is a little bit much for kids. I'm not saying eight-year-olds need to be watching Stranger Things or 10-year-olds necessarily need to be watching it. But there are actually good lessons and good messages. And the Chief Hopper character certainly applies. Steve Harrington, who is Joe Keery's character, definitely applies because he plays the high school jerk. And then in the second season, he is anything but. Joe Keery, funny story, a couple of days ago, he got kicked out of the Stranger Things cast group chat on his iPhone because they said he's too old. Tough break for him. But after Byers disappears, his friends, Mike, Dustin, and Lucas, trying to figure out what happens, they end up eventually figuring out that there's something nefarious going on at the Hawkins National Laboratory. And there's a doctor there by the name of Brenner. His name is Martin Brenner. And it's Matthew Modine, who is a name from the 80s. A lot of the kind of older folks, the adults that you see in this show, are people that you recognize from different time frames, from different periods. And certainly he qualifies. So does Paul Reiser. So does Sean Astin, who both pop up in season two. But originally it's Matthew Modine. And so Dr. Brenner and this national lab are, well, they're doing some stuff. The military is involved. Russia is kind of on the flip side because, remember, this is 1983, what was happening in 1983. This is before the Berlin Wall came down. 
This was Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall. This was Reagan versus Gorbachev. It was the Cold War. And so the Cold War is just another piece of the setting in the background. What we figure out in season one is that there is a flip side to our reality, a mirror image of our world in which characters and monsters and people with telekinesis and psychic powers and things like that exist. And this mirror world is called the upside down. That's kind of what the kids call it. It's another D&D-ish kind of reference. And so the Demogorgon, the monster that steals Will Byers, that forces him to disappear, escaped from this mirror world and got into our reality. Did not come alone, though. There was a child as well. That's Millie Bobby Brown, who plays Eleven. They find her in the woods, the kids do, and they hide her at Mike's house. And Mike is kind of, he is sort of your main kid of the four. He's the one that you follow. He's the one that you get to know the parents a lot better. And he and Eleven strike up a major friendship because he doesn't immediately, you know, hide from her or scare her or things like that. He actually kind of tries to understand her. And so that's where they end up. And she senses that Will Byers is hiding in the upside down from the Demogorgon because she came from there and she has these extra powers. Nancy, who is Mike's sister, has a friend named Barb who disappears. And this is Shannon Purser's character. Shannon Purser, who no one had ever heard of before, but now everybody knows the story of Barb because Stranger Things kind of let that character arrive at Steve's house for what turns out to be kind of a party, and she's sitting by herself out by the pool, and then the monster shows up, pulls her into the upside down, down into the pool, basically, or I think she goes into the tree and disappears, and then we never hear from her again, and nobody asks questions, at least not in season one. And yeah, she died, basically getting snatched out of Steve's backyard. And so Joyce Byers gets a message that's telling her to run because the Demogorgon's trying to come through the wall of her house, or is it Will Byers? We don't actually know. They end up finding Will's body at the quarry, but it's not him. And Hopper cuts open the body to prove that, and you see that there's cotton organs. Well, just cotton, really. He's a stuffed toy. And the real Will, and the real Will Byers is actually in this dark mirror, this upside down of Hawkins, Indiana, which is the perfect setting. And so the story kind of goes from there. And if you've seen it, you don't need the refresher. And if you want to see it, and I'm telling you, you should, it's a great show, then I don't want to spoil everything for you. So I'm going to kind of stop there and go into a different direction. I want to talk about the influences of this show. The Duffer brothers, who clearly were obsessed and infatuated with 80s pop culture, not unlike me, have used so many different spots to reference this show that that it actually ends up feeling like an homage to the past. And so Stranger Things, there's a little bit of the thing in it. And there's some of the Stephen King novels that you grew up reading, but maybe, well, no, you know what? Almost every Stephen King novel, unfortunately, ends with some kind of alien force. And then there were the classic big monster films, even dating back to the 70s. But the Demigorgon is very much a throwback baddie, a throwback villain, even with the Dungeons and Dragons context. But it's super effective. And then you've got a ton of Steven Spielberg just riddled through this. You've got E.T., you've got Bob Gale and Back to the Future. You've got some Ghostbusters in there. Ghostbusters actually turns out to be the Halloween costumes that they're wearing in Season 2, which 
Uh, it's close to my heart because I had a cardboard proton pack at a church lock-in when I was dressing as Peter Venkman. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it took me a while to find the woman of my dreams, but luckily she has arrived. There was a ton of Richard Donner also, I think. I think that maybe the biggest two influences, that one of them you don't think about at all is Gremlins. Chris Columbus, Gremlins, and just kind of some of the rules and the Dartanian, the Dart character that Dustin adopts and thinks can be his pet but is actually a baby demigorgon. It's like a demi-dog, and you could see it coming from a mile away. You can see a little bit of Gremlins in that. But the biggest influence, and you can find some close encounters and and things like that also, but the big one is the Goonies. The Goonies and the kids and the quest mentality and the danger involved with them going from the Fratellis and trying to find this treasure that's going to save their community because none of them are particularly wealthy. This is a quest where the kids are the stars, and it's multiple kids, and it's their relationships and their individual kind of unique characteristics that drive things. It's And then there are some adults, and there are more adults in Stranger Things than there are in the Goonies. I mean, you have Anne Ramsey, and you have a couple of the buffoons with the Fratellis, but it's generally about the kids. And this one is about both, but this show is a cavalcade of 80s references and a cavalcade of callbacks and a cavalcade of Easter eggs. And without that nostalgia, Stranger Things is nothing. With that nostalgia, it's one of Netflix's biggest original hits, and it is a bona fide subscription machine that keeps on paying dividends for the service. I think season four is supposed to be the last one. When you watched the first one, you weren't sure if you'd see another one, even though it ends with a great cliffhanger. Both seasons do, as a matter of fact. And when we come back, we will talk about the way season two ended, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of camera work you will ever see subtle and immediately and incredibly effective. We got one more segment to go in this special kind of truncated edition of the pop six. We'll do a much more expansive season three deal on the pop six podcast in coming weeks. Plus I'm going to write about the show, but we're just giving a little bit of a primer, giving you an idea of what we do on the pop six, which is deep dive to depths never before seen to go into pop culture and these things that we love. And we'll do a little bit more of it next right here on 104.5 The Zone. Hey, welcome back. Final segment of this special edition of The Pop 6, which is my pop culture podcast that you can find at 104.5thezone.com. Look at the Connect drop down menu at the top of the website first option is podcasts and on demand audio and you go there you can get all the shows content of course my show the big six i'm jason martin should probably have told you that off the top i'm blessed beyond measure all reasonable and otherwise hope you recognize that you are as well you can follow me on twitter at jmart zone but the midday 180 3hl wake up zone the neutral zone uh all of doug matthews content you can find there you can find Podcast exclusive stuff as well. Speedway soccer. Step one, learn sports. Avery and Brittany are doing some really inventive stuff. And we're all super excited to see what they come up with on a week-to-week basis. Talk to Brett Bryan. He works with them pretty much every week. And they're they're having a blast doing it. We're having a blast listening to it. And it was cool to have them in for me a couple of weeks ago uh, as I was working on another show. But the Pop 6, I've done a pop culture podcast for a long time. Uh, It's been under various names. When I was with Clay Travis, it was Outkick the Culture. And then when I came back here to 
take this position at the zone where I interned in 2012 and, and always wanted to work as a host, they wanted me to bring the pop culture content along for the ride. And so 1045thezone.com slash big six blog. You can read all my reviews there. The latest is Spider-Man Far From Home, which was up uh, about a week ago. If you haven't seen it yet, one, you should see the movie, but you can always read my stuff and know that I'm not going to spoil it unless I tell you otherwise. Like sometimes I'll go deep dive into stuff, but never am I going to spoil anything before it actually comes out. Here, Stranger Things is what we're talking about because just yesterday, season three launched on Netflix. It's probably going to be the biggest Netflix release, certainly of the summer, certainly one of the biggest of the year, if not the biggest of the year on that platform. And the nostalgia of that show has carried it so far. But so have the performances and these characters. It's not that these are like Oscar-winning performances, Emmy-winning performances. It's kids that you like, and it's kids that are fun to watch. Finn Wolfhard looks like he's straight out of the 80s. He was also in It. He plays Mike Wheeler. Millie Bobby Brown, we've talked about her and, and uh, as 11. Gatton Matarazzo, who plays Dustin Henderson, another kid that looks like he's straight out of the 80s. Caleb McLaughlin, Lucas Sinclair. And Noah Schnapp, Will Byers. And then you bring in Sadie Sink, who plays Max Mayfield. She shows up along with her brother, Billy Hargrove, Doc Ray Montgomery, in season two. And Billy Hargrove becomes the jerk that Steve Harrington, you assumed he was going to be. But Billy's got all sorts of trouble. He's got all sorts of problems. And I think he's going to play a bigger factor in season three, even with Mike's mother, Karen Wheeler, who is Cara Buono, and there might even be a romance there, or certainly they kind of tease that in the trailer. And season three takes place, guess what, during the summer, 4th of July, carnivals, all of that. But the upside down is still there. And so just a beautiful piece of camera work at the end of season two. We get through with everything. Eleven has her redemptive moment in those final couple of episodes where she shows up and her power is enough to do what needs to be done to save Hawkins. And we've had these destroyed crops, and we've had Hopper trapped in the Upside Down, and Hopper, who basically adopted Eleven, kept her safe when she returned from the Upside Down in the first season. But she was worried about what might happen to her friends, particularly Mike, because she's dangerous to be around because guys like Dr. Brenner are always going to be out to get her because her power is something that can be used and it can be harnessed. And there's a lot of experiments going on you know how this works. Science experiments on people and things. This was straight out of the 80s. I'm not talking about Soylent Green here, but this makes total sense if you've watched any of those kinds of sci-fi, not really action films. The sci-fi with a little bit of horror tinged into it was a hallmark of the 80s. And Stranger Things, which has a couple of curse words in it, but generally speaking, follows that 80s rubric. One example I can give you that's more current is Super 8, which was a Steven Spielberg film that came out, I'm not exactly sure anymore, maybe seven, eight years ago. And I don't know that everybody liked it, but it was one of the last Steven Spielberg things that I thought really worked. I did not expect much from it. And it turned out to, again, it was about kids, and it felt like Stand By Me mixed with the thing. And I feel like Stranger Things has some Stand By Me in it as well. I don't know that it has young stars that are going to translate or have the potential to have long careers like some of them did, even though there was tragedy to be found in their personal lives, meaning the real lives of the actors playing those roles. And these kids, these kids seem to be a lot of fun-loving kids. You've seen them do Saturday Night Live and Jimmy Fallon and all this kind of stuff. 
because Stranger Things became such a phenomenon. I remember when I first saw it pop up on Netflix. I got the screeners for season two uh, in advance, was able to write about them. I wrote on every episode. I wrote, I've written over 20,000 words on Stranger Things. I would say almost all of that on season two, and then I did kind of a recap of season one. And I've done a past episode of Outkick to Culture back in the day where I talked about the show as well. Season three, Netflix was a little bit bottled up. I wasn't able to actually pick this one up in advance, so I'll be watching it and writing on it as we go. But you'll be able to read all that content at the Big Six blog. But season two, Will Byers turns out to be more than we bargained for because he does return, but as season one ends, it ends on a great cliffhanger where Will's not okay even though he's back. And season two ends with a shot of the school at the dance after everything has gone down and it feels like Hawkins is saved and everybody else is saved as well. But the mind flayer, the villain of season two, who takes over Will Byers and kind of, Will Byers is almost a video camera. He's almost a spy camera for the mind flayer who's controlling him. The mind flayer is still alive. And what you see at the end of season two is the camera shows the school, and then you start to see the school tilt a little bit. You're wondering, what exactly is happening here? And I picked it up probably about 45 degrees in, what we were about to see. I don't know how long it took you. Maybe you got it before I did. The camera continues to flip, and 45 degrees becomes 60, and then 60 becomes 75, and then 90, and then it goes 180 degrees. And then you're staring at that school upside down and so you see in that moment okay all is not okay in hawkins indiana and what was the real world may now be the mirror world or certainly the upside down is still alive and kicking if not about to completely take over so as season three starts which launched yesterday on netflix you may have already started watching it if you we're able to get away from the cookouts and the pools long enough to do so. We've got to see what's next. But what has come before is a great nostalgic mix of sci-fi, horror, some comedy, but so many things that we grew up with that we can remember and just feel good again. I said on the Big Six a couple of weeks ago that one of the reasons why I think Pixar is the best studio isn't because of the animation. It's because you can feel like a kid again and you can feel like society is not the cesspool that social media makes it out to be. You can walk out of Toy Story 4 and feel good about the world and feel like there's still a lot to like about the existence that we have. Feel like you're blessed, maybe in a way that you didn't recognize before that point. And there are a lot of shows that go the opposite. Do you ever feel good watching House of Cards? And I mean before the spacey stuff. Did you feel good watching that show? I don't think so. This was an anti-hero decade, and it's been an anti-hero century, dating back to Tony Soprano. You can go even further back, like J.R. Ewing back on Dallas. But Tony Soprano and Walter White and Don Draper and Frank and Claire Underwood and BoJack Horseman and Jax Teller. And Raylan Givens and guys that are flawed or women that are flawed. Patty Hughes on damages. The list goes on and on. The pure hero didn't go anywhere. And one thing that DC Comics found out 
was or that we found out about DC was the one film that they've made that's worked that's not like a Lego Batman was Wonder Woman. And that's because she was 100% hero and we had just gotten finished watching Batman versus Superman and we didn't want to see Shades of Grey anymore because we see that enough. We wanted to actually have something uplifting. And I think that's why Stranger Things hits us the way it does because it's nostalgia that is rooted in the feelings you had back in the 80s where there was a whole lot of hope, especially if you were of a certain age. And so that's all the time I got. We'll do a lot more. This is why you want to listen to the Pop 6. We, we don't have time constraints. This is just a small tidbit, a small morsel of what you can get from the Pop 6. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed your holiday weekend. I will talk to you on Monday on the Big 6. I'm Jason Martin. I'm, I'm so blessed just that you, you gave me the time today or any time that you give me. Hit me up on Twitter at jmartzone. And on the way out, man, I, I got to tell you, this this Kyle Dixon, Michael Stein, these soundtracks that they've put out, especially now that they're sort of synthesizing some of the classic tunes like the Bob O'Reilly that you heard a couple segments ago, I'm just going to let you hear this theme on the way out. It's the dopest theme in all TV, man. This thing is a banger. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless and good night.